Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 3? That's where we'll be working through this morning. But before we dive in fully to Psalm chapter 3, I wanted to read just a section out of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 4. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. I love that last song that we sang. It's a good reminder that even through challenging seasons of our life that you know, not all our songs and not all the words we say, not all the things we do need to be happy clappy. It's okay and good to consider lament. The Bible isn't silent on lament, these times when we feel overwhelmed or afflicted. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you feel overwhelmed. Maybe you feel afflicted. I'm glad that you're here. And I look forward to going through Psalm 3 with you uh, to just have an idea of the direction we're going, looking at the rest of our summer in the Psalms. Uh, all but one from now till the end are going to be lament <laughs> Psalms. And so this is a category we uh, want to and need to become uh, familiar with. Uh, Psalm 3, if you've turned there in your Bibles, if you... Uh, I can't find Psalms. It's a nice big book. You can kind of just split it in the middle, maybe a little bit to the left, and you should find Psalms. And you can flip right back pretty much to the beginning. You'll find Psalm 3. And there's a number of different things that we see in the Bible as we open it up. We see words. We see titles and numbers and bold and italics and all caps. And there's a lot of different things happening. But if we look at Psalm 3 as the example, uh, at least looking at my Bible in front of me. Yours might be slightly different, but there's a bold title. Mine says, Save Me, O My God. Now that is uh, a title that was added after the fact, uh, as these Psalms and as all the chapters of the Bible are kind of categorized. Uh, the titles are added after. And the numbers, you'll see a big number three and then a bunch of small numbers. Those were added after the fact too to kind of categorize and, and uh, sort out what we have in front of us. But you should see in your Bibles, Another thing, uh, right underneath where in my Bible it says, save me, oh my God, there's a section of text, mine's in all caps, but it doesn't have a verse number in front of it, it doesn't have anything like that. But these are what, different people have different names, you could call it a title, uh, some call it a superscription, and these are part of the original text. Uh, in older uh, manuscripts that we have, this would actually be considered verse 1. And then everything else would be shifted one down. You may see, if you're reading books about the Psalms, that this would be Psalm 3, verse 0. Uh, that may be what they call this. But it is part of the original text, and it's an important piece of, of what we have. And so for Psalm 3 as our example and our text this morning, it says this, A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now that little title gives us some kind of brackets or a framework of the context of this psalm. King David is on the run. He's on the run from his own son. Now, there's a lot of circumstances that led up to this. Now, I encourage you, take a read through 
2 Samuel, and you'll get a picture of, of what's happening here. But it's pretty dark stuff. Namely, the famous story of David spying on a woman, deciding that he wanted her to be his wife, uh, arranging for her husband to be killed, and then marrying her. I told you, dark stuff. And through a few more twisted events, we end up with David's own son orchestrating a coup. And so the context of this psalm is dark. And we, say, we see that, that David is deeply flawed. He's in darkness. He's scared. It's overwhelming. And so maybe, I hope, your life and King David's life are not running direct parallels this morning with some of the context that led David into writing this psalm. But the idea that this psalm is dark, scary, and overwhelming may really resonate deeply with where you are this morning or where you've been in your life. And Psalm 3 teaches us when we encounter times that are dark, scary, and overwhelming, Psalm 3 teaches us how to handle being deeply overwhelmed. The Bible and life isn't all sunshine and rainbows. Real challenges face us. And I know that you don't need me to tell you that. So our big idea this morning is this. And I borrowed the language from Romans chapter 8. Our big idea is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? So as we run into situations of being utterly overwhelmed, I pray that as we work through Psalm 3, we could proclaim that truth. If God is for us, who could be against us? And so let's look at God's word to see how we respond to not just the feeling of being overwhelmed, but actually being overwhelmed. We'll see there's eight verses in this chapter. And the first six, uh, sorry, the first two we'll be seeing David crying out, I need help. And then the last six would be David proclaiming that he has help. And so those are our two points as we work through this morning. I need help and I have help. So first, I need help. Psalm 3, 1 through 2 says this. David uses God's covenant name. Oh, Yahweh, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. So before we even get too far, we see a new word so far in our little trip through the Psalms. Selah. Now the meaning of this Hebrew word is unknown. Uh, but it's frequently used throughout the Psalms. It may be a musical term or a liturgy or order term. Many believe it to be somewhere along the lines of meaning pause. That as we read through, it gives us a moment to pause and breathe and take a second before we move on to what comes next. Others treat it almost as a, a paragraph marker. It kind of gives us sections as we work through the passage. But either way, uh, there isn't agreement, uh, but there interpretation doesn't affect us terribly. It does, again, help us divide things up, and it does help us if we treat it as uh, a pause. 
But again, O Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David is crying out, help. I need help. Notice the triplet of many. Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. Many people are against him. And as we saw from the introduction, David's own son is coming after him, attempting to overthrow him. He is being mocked. He is being slandered against. And these accusations are serious. This isn't just simply saying, is this guy qualified to be king? He's a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a disaster case. They're saying, look at him. He's sinning so egregiously. They're more saying, your sins are so bad that God cannot even save you. They say, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. It's a big claim. And if we remember last week as we worked through Psalm 2, the Davidic king was Yahweh's anointed. He was specially appointed to hold up Yahweh's covenant instruction. And so David is saying this accusation is against his anointing, against his being chosen, against Yahweh appointing him. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. The state of his soul is in question. He's being taunted. And David is rightly afraid. There's not just subtle murmuring happening in his kingdom. He is on the run for his life. Now, I've never experienced being hunted down. And I hope you haven't. And I hope you never do. But we have a paralyzing problem that I think is in the same category that David is experiencing right now. And this paralyzing problem is what we call fear of man. And this is what's going on here. David is exclaiming, I need help. Fear of man can manifest itself in many different ways. Author and counselor Ed Welch has an excellent book on the subject called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And he writes this, however you put it, the fear of man can be summarized this way. We replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. He goes on to write, the fear of man goes by other names. When we are teens, we call it peer pressure. When we are older, we call it people-pleasing. Recently, it's been called codependency. With these labels in mind, we can spot the fear of man everywhere. Is this resonating with you, or am I a lone ranger in this? I know I'm not. And if pastoral ministry has taught me anything about myself, it's that far too often I do fear man. And the fear of man is very real and very dangerous. Often it sneaks by in our lives and we justify it. We don't see it as the sin that it really is. And a while back I talked about idolatry. And I talked about how author and pastor Tim Keller writes that idolatry can be really boiled down into three main categories. Three main categories. Fame and approval, power and control, or comfort and security. Fame and approval, power and control, 
comfort, and security. And so when we look at fear of man, we can boil it down to these idols. You know, I'm afraid of looking dumb. Fame and approval. I'm afraid of losing my authority. Power and control. I'm afraid of, you know, what this person can do to me. Comfort and security. And the reason that these idols or fear of man can be hard to diagnose is it looks different for everybody. Again, if you want an excellent book on the subject, read Welch's book. But if you consider every sphere of your life, start to train your eye to see where fear of man creeps in. And call it what it is. It's idolatry. Again, as Welch said, we replace God with people. Idolatry is replacing God with anything. So as we consider fear of man, we replace God with people. Instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. And so this is the the context. This is the reality that David's in. He is king. It doesn't get more powerful than that. And through this series of events, we see him lose fame and approval. We see him lose power and control. We see him lose comfort and security. He has seemingly lost everything. And so, if we stop right here, this is where we find him crying out, I need help. And this is the sad reality of where we live a lot of the time. We stop at the end of these two verses, and we're just left crying out, I need help. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of many coming against me. I'm afraid of losing my fame and approval, my comfort and security, my power and control. We say, the world is against me. Many are rising. I can't believe they said that about me. And so whether this affliction that David is suffering is due to his sin or not, he is being sinned against. And I want to acknowledge that that's the reality of life in a fallen world. Bullies are real. Gossip is rampant. It takes about 12 seconds of scrolling on social media to just see blatant slander and dehumanization. Violence and attack are very real too. Even if us right now in this place are in a very safe place. And this is what I mean. The Psalms don't pull punches. This is real life. And maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're drowning in the waters of anxiety or depression or oppression or simply just being overwhelmed. The good news is that our passage does not stop at verse 2. We see that David cries out, I need help. But the next six verses he says, I have help. I need help and I have help. Let's keep reading. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. David counters the hopelessness of the first two verses, the the profession of many being against him, the profession of fear of man, and he counters it with hope. It says, but you, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. Now, not to overanalyze a metaphor, but to overanalyze a metaphor. Yahweh is David's shield around him. 
He's not just one of those little, you know, like the Captain America shields. Captain America is pretty good with it. But still, that's, it, that takes a lot of work on your behalf. That's not what David's talking about. It's not that type of shield. He's saying, you are a shield around me. Picture that force field. He's attacked from frontal assault, and he, or he's protected from frontal assault and from being stabbed in the back. You are a shield about me. And notice that this doesn't stop the accusations or the assault. But what David proclaims is that God protects him. And he goes on to say, my glory. Now, what does it mean to glorify? It's to attribute worth. And so what David is saying when he says, my glory He's making a big and bold statement here. And don't miss this. What would you think of an earthly king attributing worth to? When I think of an earthly king, I think of a deep desire for each of those three idol categories. Power and control, fame and approval, comfort and security. David lost all of these things. But he hasn't lost the one thing that matters. David hasn't lost his God. He hasn't lost his shield. So he can say, my glory. He can say, you are the lifter of my head. D.L. Moody writes this, we can stand affliction better than we can stand prosperity. For in prosperity, we forget God. We can stand affliction better than we can stand prosperity, for in prosperity we forget God. This is what David is encountering in this moment. He is deeply, overwhelmingly afflicted. But he can say, you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. And so it's in David's affliction that he can affirm God's grace. And so I imagine a child on the floor filled with utter shame. Maybe you've been that child. Maybe you are that literal or figurative child. But imagine sitting there in your shame and your father who knows you deeply, like we read about in Psalm 1, who knows us intimately, He knows you in the bog of sin and shame. But in your filth and sin, it doesn't cause him to pull away. He comes and puts his finger under your chin. And he lifts up your head. He's your shield. You are his child. This is the beauty of the gospel. We can be known by God We can have him know the state of our hearts. Now, to be known by God is the scariest thing we could ever encounter. He is holy. We are not. He is perfect. We are not. He knows us deeper than we know ourselves. But like David, you know, we know the twisted heart that we have. The adultery of our hearts. Like David, the, the hate that we hide behind a smile, the utter fear of man, the idols right, left, and center. 
but he calls us his own. He not only pulls us out of the filthy mess that we've made and sends us on our way, he adopts us as his child. And so this is what it means to be a Christian, to be a child of God. We have even more opportunity for calm and security than David did. But this is the hope that David trusts in, his security. He lost everything. But this is his glory. And here we find the antidote to fear of man. Ed Welch again writes, the most radical treatment of the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. Say that again. The most radical treatment for the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. God must be bigger to you than people are. God must be bigger to you than people are. And so how does David respond after he sets his hope, his glory, not in the approval of man, but in the approval of God? Not in the fear of man, but in the fear of God. He's at peace. And we see an interesting and comforting reflection. He sleeps. Verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. You see that David's affliction draws him in. It's like a funnel to put his trust in God. A few months back, we considered Peter in prison in Acts chapter 12. I love the response, and we considered this then. He's sleeping. If I was stuck in prison, fearing for my life, I think I'd be pulling an all-nighter. I'd be trying to figure out how to get out of there. But Peter was at peace, and he slept because he knew God was with him. And David, in this situation, he says, Many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But he can lay down his head and sleep. He is at peace through his God, who is his shield, his glory, and the lifter of his head. It is good that we worship a God who is bigger than our circumstances. And how he can use trial and affliction to teach us important lessons. It's a long quote, but stay with me here. J.C. Ryle writes this. Affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, he often teaches lessons which would be learned no other way. By it, he often draws souls away from sin and the world which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is greater. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire. But losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Let us beware of murmuring in the time of trouble. Let us settle it firmly in our minds that there is a meaning, a needs be, and a message from God in every sorrow that falls upon us. There are no lessons so useful as those learned in the school of affliction. There is no commentary that opens up the Bible so much as sickness and sorrow. The resurrection morning will prove that many of the losses of God's people were in reality eternal gains. 
Thousands at the last day will testify with David, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. It's from Psalm 119, verse 71. So David doesn't deny the struggles. He doesn't sugarcoat life. He doesn't say, oh, I'll just press on. Right? He says, many thousands of people are against me. But what else does he say? I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I will not be afraid. I pray that that would be our prayer. Overwhelming affliction is a reality. Anxious, overwhelmed, fearful. Like David, would we look to our God who alone can give us peace enough to sleep, who alone can allow us to say, I will not be afraid. And then we see in verse 7 that David calls on God to act. Verse 7, arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. That kind of makes us cringe a little bit. This can trouble us. This isn't the last time that we're going to encounter you know, calling on God to act in judgment through the Psalms. We see that God has been faithful and David calls on God to act. And this is more than purely spite-driven. You see David deeply mourn. Spoiler alert, Absalom dies. And David mourns deeply. David's not just trying to, you know, hurt people. This is more than spite-driven, but he is calling on God to strike the cheek, signifying rebuke. It's a slap in the face. He calls on God to break the teeth of the wicked. And again, this is more than just torture or a, a punch in the mouth. To break the teeth was to signify disarming. Right? A lion becomes a lot less threatening once they're declawed and defanged. And so what David's doing in this moment, he calls on God to act. He calls on God to rebuke and disarm his enemies, the enemies of Yahweh and his anointed. Remember Psalm 2? And we see that this Psalm, Psalm 3, begins with David being slandered, accused that there is no salvation for him in God. And yet David closes his Psalm with a powerful proclamation. Verse 8, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. We see that God is the God of salvation. He blesses not just David, but all of his people. We see that this psalm starts in the depths of overwhelming affliction, and it ends with a powerful proclamation that God is always there. And so I want to tell you some good news this morning as we work through a lament. In the midst of being absolutely overwhelmed, we can say that God is our shield. He is our glory. He is the lifter of our heads. Salvation belongs to Yahweh alone. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, where do you turn when the world is against you? 
I tell you, look to Christ, our King, your King who became sin for you, your King who was struck on the cheek for you, who was shamed, beaten, and broken for you. Salvation belongs to the Lord, our Lord who defeated death. He rose from the grave. He made a way for us to be made right with God. God's wrath against us was satisfied. And you may be sitting there thinking, I'm beyond saving. Many are my foes. I can't dig myself out of this pit. I can't. I don't even have a shield. I can't lift up my head. But that's simply not true. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't have this conditional offer looming over your head. His grace is grace beyond measure. So like David, we need to come to God humbly, acknowledging that all we have is not and cannot be our glory. He alone can be our glory. And so in a few minutes, we're going to be sharing in the Lord's Supper together. Sharing in communion is a great leveler for Christians. By taking those elements, we are acknowledging that we are sinners desperately in need of a Savior. We come humbly and we come desperate, like David. And we don't come to this time in the order of the spectrum of like, all right, all the real bad sinners go on that side of the stage and all the real good people end up over here. We don't come on this spectrum of how bad of a sinner or how righteous we are. If you've been baptized as a believer, you've symbolically died and have been raised again in Christ. You've been united with Christ and his people. In baptism, one is bound to many. And in the Lord's Supper, many are bound to one. We come together as a church to remember and to proclaim. We collectively say it's by grace alone that we've been saved. By having his body broken and by shedding his blood, we can be redeemed. We see when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he was sharing the Passover meal with his friends, but there's a change. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so we come humble to the table, but we come confident, not because what we've done, but because what Christ has done on our behalf. If it weren't for a merciful God, we couldn't lift our head. We couldn't stand in the judgment. But the good news is we don't lift our own head. He lifts our head. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if you aren't a Christian and you're here with us this morning, I'm so glad that you're here. But this time where we take the bread and we remember Christ's body broken for us and we take the cup and we remember Christ's blood shed for us, this isn't for you to partake with us physically. But instead, I would ask that you would can still consider the truths in it. Jesus, who stood in our place and bore the weight of our sin, and that by simply turning from sin and acknowledging Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, we can have eternal life with him. If you have questions, please talk to somebody after the service. Come find me. If God is tugging at your heart, please don't ignore it. And Christians, brothers and sisters, you may be thinking, did he forget to end the sermon? He just kind of slipped into communion here. 
Yes, and here's why. The Lord's Supper is a sermon for us. It is the gospel visualized. As we look to David's example, we can see him respond appropriately. The world is crumbling around him. And so when he was afraid and overwhelmed, what did he do? I would imagine that he looked back. He looked back to a time throughout history, times throughout his own life, where God has kept his promises and he's redeemed his people. And so I'd imagine David looked back, he remembered, but he also looked forward. He doesn't say, you were my shield, you were my glory, you lifted my head. No, he says, you are my shield, you are my glory, you are the lifter of my head. And so in the face of trials, David remembers and he proclaims. David remembers and proclaims salvation. And that's what we do in the Lord's Supper. We remember and we proclaim and we do it together. If you are anything like me, your default position when life gets overwhelming is not to respond like David did in Psalm 3. When I'm overwhelmed, I sulk. I shut down, I sink in, I look in and I don't look up. But when we remember the gospel, either through reading the Bible, through our discipling relationships, through singing songs, or through something that God has ordained for our worship, like the Lord's Supper, we shift our gaze and we do it together. And so this morning, whether you're facing overwhelm or not, as we sang before, and we'll sing again, through the raging storm, we can praise God our salvation. As we share in the cup, we look around, literally look around at each other. It's not weird. We look around and collectively we remind ourselves and one another of the weight of Christ's glorious sacrifice. We remind one another that he has been, is, and will be our shield, our glory, the lifter of our head, and our salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who saves, that you are merciful, that you are our shield, our glory, and the lifter of our head. We can't fathom or express how mind-boggling it is that you save us. And it's not by our works, but what you have done, by the gift of your Son. Father, we come saying, I need help. I need help. God, thank you for the truths of your word that we can confidently say that we have help. Now, the greatest help we ever could have is the gift of your son. And so as we approach this time together where we eat the bread and we drink the cup, God, help us to reflect on the depths of that truth that Jesus died on our behalf. Thank you for your grace. And it's in our Savior's name, the name of Jesus, that we pray all these things. Amen.